One, two, three. Welcome to Three Song Stories, the place where musical memories are transmuted into personal stories. Thanks for listening. I'm Mike Canary. Our guest this week is John Donvan. John has been host and moderator of Open to Debate since 2008. It was until fairly recently called Intelligence Squared. We air it on Sunday evenings at 7 here on WGCU. John is an author and four-time Emmy Award-winning journalist who during his career reported for ABC, CNN, and PBS, including multi-year postings in Moscow, London, Jerusalem, and Amman. And he spent one term as chief White House correspondent for ABC News. His 2016 book, In a Different Key, The Story of Autism, was a New York Times bestseller and a Pulitzer Prize finalist. There's also a PBS documentary of the same name based on it. I'm a big fan of the work John and his team do on Open to Debate, bringing civil conversations around often difficult topics to the public, demonstrating that it's still possible even in our increasingly polarized world, and so was so happy when he agreed to do our little show. Hey there, John. How are you this morning? I'm good. Thanks. Thanks very much. So um, in Googling and preparing for this uh, episode, I was startled to see your name pronounced or spelled rather Donovan in some really pronounced places. Is that a common thing for people to misunderstand how to spell your last name? Every single day of my life. Literally, <laughs> every every day of my life, somebody, it happened already today, somebody called me Donovan, somebody I went to high school with. Because uh, our reunion, 50th reunion is coming up, and he's trying to put together a bunch of people to go to a baseball game, and he shared with the, the group who's going uh, so far, and John Donovan was one of the people going, whoever he is. Now, just so you know, I found one instance of Donovan on the Open to debate website. Oh, really? And, and one and on a page for you. And yeah, and one on uh, uh, an article in Current Magazine. Who you'd think would have their facts straight? So anyway, yeah. I'm I'm glad I noticed. Um, okay, have you listened to any music so far today? Um, yes, I did. I did. What were you listening to? I was listening to different covers of a song by Mister Rogers. Oh, in advance of today's show, probably. Yes. Yeah. Because in a, in a way, I kind of wish that I had talked with you about covers of the song that I'm providing today because some of them are really beautiful, more beautiful than the original. Well, you know, once we get to it, we can change to a cover if you want because we are that flexible. Um, I think maybe hearing the, the the composer himself in his own voice is probably the best way to go. Okay. And, and, and the covers, I don't know about getting rights to those. They're all people do putting them out on YouTube, but they're, some of them are spectacularly nice. Understood. little tip into the future for listeners. So yeah. uh, where did you grow up, John, and how would you describe the musical background of your childhood there? Um, I was born in um, Manhattan, New York City, and raised for several years in the Bronx, the borough of the Bronx. And then we moved um, into Westchester County to Yonkers, which is basically the Bronx, you know, with some more trees. It's, it, it borders the Bronx and that's where I grew up. And, um, I went to uh, Catholic school there. And then, um, in the eighth grade, I was fortunate to get, um, to win a scholarship to a high school in New York city called Regis high school. And I went to Regis high school in Manhattan every day. And I was a 14 year old who is now from the suburbs being able to get on a train and travel an hour to into the city and go to high school and then come home late at night, like by 7 p.m. at night. 
was a great, great adventure for me and sort of life opening, eye opening and life changing experience. So what was the musical background? What was going on around you? Like your parents playing, you know, what no, was happening? No, there was, there was no music, um, really in our house, um, growing up. And, and I don't mean to suggest that, that it was a barren, you know, um, austere place. Um, it's just not, um, you know, we didn't have, my parents didn't have a record collection or anything like that. And, um, the songs that kind of leaked through to my head at all in that period are the result of having, um, the radio on the, you know, the radio shows would occasionally play different pieces of music, the stuff that they were listening to. And, um, and my sister who was six years older than me, um, she was more interested in, um, in pop music. And so the era I'm talking about where I, I was born in 1955. So, um, it was a different era in what to find popular music. And then Elvis was coming along then. And then, um, there was, you know, kind of, I, I remember the first song, I think I remember my sister being a fan of was, uh, Chubby Checkers doing the twist. And so she had those little 45s and a little record player. And I would hear music coming from her room. Um, and, uh, um, it was all sort of pre Beatles, early sixties, pre Beatles kind of, um, pop music. And then the Beatles came and I became much more aware of them more because they were a cultural phenomenon than strictly speaking because of the music. And, um, you know, the, as a result of all of this, uh, I'm, I'm not a person who I would describe as having music, you know, deep in my bones. And so I considered myself a very odd choice for this program about music, but I do have a different kind of relationship to music and, and it might, might be one that more people have than I'm aware of, but it's not the one my wife has. She can't live without music. My kids can't live without music. They have an enormous, I have two children, they're adults now. They have, and my wife, they have an enormously kind of wide and eclectic yet organized uh, hierarchy of the music that they love and listen to and the connection to it and it, how, what it means to them. And they need to have it on all the time. And I don't. Except for yeah. Mr. Rogers songs covers. <laughs> yeah. But it, it's, it, it's the, 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 the role that music has played in my life is much more. And I know some people speak about this too. Um, but it's really the case with me is that, um, um, my memories of, and the relationship of songs, to to my experience in life is much more what people say about smell where they you know they'll they'll catch a fragrance of something and it'll bring them back and it'll take them to a place and so i have much more of the experience of music as a soundtrack to moments in my life just because it was there it was playing and it stands for something it stands for a memory and it ev it evokes a memory but it's not in most cases it's not strictly speaking something that the music is doing to me emotionally although sometimes that can happen but it's it's closer to the um i don't want to say cerebral because i just talked about the sense of smell which is the least cerebral senses sense of all but it's just um i'll, I'll hear i'll hear something uh, and it'll take me back to where i first heard it or um um there, there's, there are pieces of music that I associate with certain situations and, and places, and I end up whistling that theme to myself every time I encounter that moment. A very specific example I can give to you, give you is um, I live in Washington, D.C., and 
there's a lot of low helicopter traffic here in Washington. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, there's some military uh, helicopter traffic, and of course, the president and the vice president and other cabinet ministers, I believe, um, travel around by helicopter, and they're there all the time. Um, and and I'm sort of in the flight path. Every single time, every single time I hear or see a helicopter, the theme song from MASH goes through my head. And sometimes I end up whistling it out loud. And, and you know, my family notices it, that this is a thing that I, that I do. Every single time I land at an airport, um, a different piece of music comes through my head. And it's Carly Simon's... Um, uh, what's it called? It's it's the one that was transformed into Itsy Bitsy Spider. It was played in the movie Heartburn, and there's a scene in the movie where uh, Meryl Streep is getting off of a plane, walking down onto the tarmac with her two children, and this Carly Simon uh, song is, is starting to play. And so every time I ever land at an airport at the moment when, the, when the, uh, the, we're approaching the gate that song goes through my head, but it's especially true if it's on an airplane where you get off and walk across the tarmac, which is something that I've always loved doing in life is that sort of the, I, I feel much more that I've been flying if I get off a plane onto the ground as opposed to get off a gra- a, the plane into one of those tubes into the airport. But every single time I land in a plane, that happens. Every time I've ever been in Paris, um, which I haven't in now in quite some time, but I used to live overseas and would frequently go to Paris when I lived in London because it was a 45 minute flight. Um, the music from Last Tango in Paris would, would play through my head and I would end up whistling along with it. So I have, I have much, I have a different relationship to music is that it's like the sense of smell. It's, it triggers a memory and it serves as a soundtrack to a moment. And I think I get some sort of, uh, psychic, comfort out of doing that strange habit. Well, you just said, I find it odd that you chose me for this show and then explained exactly the premise of what we do and how it applies to you. So I think you're the perfect guest for this show. And by the way, I am in the process of rewatching MASH right now. I'm just at the end of season six. It holds oh, up. Oh, it so doesn't hold up, I think. it's. Oh, it's, really? Oh, my gosh. It's so... It's so filled with like sexism and alcoholism. Oh, it it it, it it's is. Un, it's really rude. And, I am uh, able to disconnect myself from the present in order to enjoy art from the past uh, okay. to some degree. <laughs> um, yeah, I, I I recently started. I, I had the song in my head forever, and then I discovered that the that it's. I think it's on Hulu. I think has Mash. I forget which, but it's all there. And I I went back to watch it because I was living overseas for most of the time that it was actually actually on, and so I wanted to go back and remember it and I was really shocked by the how today it would be entirely problematic you know the the guys the guys go on leave they're all going to to brothels in in Tokyo and they come back from the brothels and they're married guys and they're talking about how great it was in the brothels I'm, I'm and it just wouldn't fly today I think it would not fly today but it still has a big heart that has a lot of wisdom in it I'll, I'll give true it that. I agree I agree with um that. Uh, you mentioned whistling um, before we get to your first song here in a second uh, did you ever g- play any instruments growing up are you a singer and you know are you a performer of music on any level no I'm much more of a word guy spoken word I've tried I tried as a kid to learn to play the guitar and um, uh, I, I found it frustrating to not be fluent right away and um, I didn't have the patience or the maturity to 
to go through the lessons and do the practice. And, and it also like really hurt my fingers a lot. And, uh, later in life, um, I, I took a shot at piano when I was about 18 and I took some lessons, but I, again, I didn't have the patience and I, I didn't really understand. I, I kind of still don't understand why music works and, you know, the mathematics of it. Um, I, uh, I, I, and I, and I found that I didn't have the eye hand coordination ever to, um, look at a sheet of music and see there what was happening. I, I found the translation from that to my hands to be like one, one tedious step at a time. So what I did was I, I memorized five or six pieces of music by doing that kind of tedious thing. And, and once I had memorized five or six pieces of music, I stopped pursuing that because it was very tedious. And so for many, many years, uh, I had muscle memory to be able to play a number of pieces of music on the piano very, very poorly, by the way, I didn't have any kind of good technique. And, and, but I kind of haven't done that in 30 years, you know, played any of those pieces. It's in probably years. enough to impress some people if you were, they only saw you for a short period of time. <laughs> it did have that function. Yeah. yeah. Um, okay. Well, let's get to your first song. This is the Mr. Rogers song. How would you like to proceed? I, I, uh, I, gosh, I almost wish we could play it twice so that I could hear it and then tell the story it's and then you. hear it with more resonance after that but um it's not the let's um let's let's go ahead and and play it okay this is john don van's first song today this is it's you i like by fred of the neighborhood rogers written in 1971 this is three song stories it's you i like a little bit about me just very very briefly that's not about music is um i've been a professional journalist for my entire career and i started um, I've been doing it a long time and I started in the late seventies and, uh, I, am still involved in it today. So it's, um, you know, coming up on like 45 years. And one of the questions that for years people would ask me is what's the, what's the most interesting story that you've ever been on, or what's the best interview you've ever done? And I was never very good at answering that question because, um, cause I had done, I, I'd been lucky to have had a, like a wide range of things and different stories were important and interesting in different ways. But then in 2003, I interviewed and profiled Fred Rogers of Mr. Rogers neighborhood. And I finally had an answer that Fred Rogers was the best interview that I ever did. And the, the most meaningful to me and the best experience I ever had. And, um, I chose this song because of, for, to, to recognize that fact that, uh, he, I think he was a great man. Um, and he touched me, um, you know, um, you know, kind of spiritually deeply. And, um, and I totally, totally didn't expect that. And music was very, very important to him. So he wrote that song, uh, it's you, I like, and, and a, and a whole series of other ones, the most famous one being the one that he opened the show with, which is a beautiful day in the neighborhood, which is not a song I like as much. Um, but he, he wrote a number of other songs and he, he, he's obviously in the studio sang them all. He worked with, um, um, a musical arranger named Johnny Costa, who, who is a jazz musician who took the role of music in the show very, very seriously. And, and Johnny Costa would, would play live. Uh, the music was always live in the studio. There was, you know, you would hear 
there'd be a bass sometimes and maybe a drum, but there would always be the piano, and that was Johnny Costa. But the compositions were all by Fred. And he also, um, um, if, you're, if you ever watched the show, there were at least one time when he wrote an opera uh, that ran for se- over several episodes and used all of those, you know, silly, funny little characters. He had all of these puppets and these animals and these kings and queens. And he wrote a full opera. And um, so I wanted to, to bring in his music because music was so important to him. But there were the, the song that you hear, It's You I Like, captures so much of what he felt his role was in relationship to the children he was presuming watching the show. And his, his message, at a, you know, starting in the late 60s and early 70s, was one that I think is much more common now, but it was one of just total acceptance. I like you just the way you are. Um, and he, the way he would end every show saying that I like you just the way you are. And, um, um, he, he, I I would learn during the, the making of that profile of him, what a profound connection he had with lots of children out there who are now adults, some of them grandparent age, who, um, who didn't really have somebody in their lives who were telling them that they mattered, but they trusted this skinny guy with the sort of reedy voice on, on this television show, and he knew that, and he took it very, very seriously. He has files and files and files of letters that children wrote to him over the years, telling him how much they cared, he, he knew they cared about him. He wrote back to every one of them, himself, not a staff. Um, and he took that role really very, very seriously. So I was assigned to go meet him and do a profile of him, and the reality was that I was kind of skeptical of the whole thing, because, um, the, the piece that I did is up on YouTube. It's called, it's labeled uh, Mr. Rogers Cool Dude, if anybody wants to see hmm. it. Um, and the premise of the piece, and I did this like now tw- um, 20, 20 years ago. Um, the premise of the piece was that he was, he was, he was wrapping up the show. The show was going to end. And the question was like, what is he going to do with the rest of his life? And my kids had watched him a little bit. They were at that point pretty young. They were three and six years old. And, um, so I had started to watch him and I had begun to have an appreciation for him. But the reality was that for most of the, most of the run of his show, uh, I'm embarrassed to say I was kind of in that club that thought it was sort of, you know, sort of a weird show. And he was sort of, it was sort of a weird guy and it was too touchy feely. Hokey. (laughs) It was very hokey. Yeah. Yeah. You know, with the feeding the fish and the sweaters and the sneakers and all of that, that he would wear every day. And, um, and I went to meet him you know, not in any way, it's just not my style to like do a takedown. I just was, I went to meet him thinking that I have to kind of get through this and get it over with. Um, and, and instead he just so, so charmed me and, and, um, (laughs) he, he, you know, that thing he did for kids, he made me as a, as a journalist interviewing celebrities, I don't really like the process because you really kind of feel that you're, you know, you're, you're in a line of people who are being brought in to do interviews and it's kind of, okay, who's next, who's next, who's next. And, you know, I interviewed, I interviewed a lot of celebrities along the way, mostly political, like Margaret Thatcher. I remember interviewing Margaret Thatcher and realizing that Margaret Thatcher didn't give one damn who I was or Mm -hmm. what I thought or anything like that. She just, you know, that she was going to be interviewed by seven journalists that day. I next John Donvan. 
And no matter what I asked her, she didn't even listen to the question. She just went on and did her thing. And with Fred Rogers, I found something completely different going on where he really, really, he really showed an interest in me. And even though I had watched ahead of time a number of interviews he had done previously and recognized that he was answering my questions in a kind of, in, in ways where he had already formulized the answer before and he was rolling out the pre pre formulated answer for me this time I recognized two things one is there's just so many different ways he can answer a question but secondly he really was working to make it different to me and to connect with me so he was asking me questions about me and asking me questions about my kids and at that time I was working for Nightline and Nightline um, was was facing a kind of existential crisis where the network was uh, considering getting rid of Nightline um, and and bringing Dave Letterman over to ABC and they would have just canceled Nightline. And at Nightline, we had we were a show with a very, very deep sense of journalistic mission. We thought we mattered. We took it seriously. We worked hard at it. We wanted to make a difference in a positive way by telling what we believed to be the truth. We were led by Ted Koppel, who's one of the greatest journalists of all time. And, and here we were suddenly being told, um, you're dispensable. What you do is dispensable. And when I saw Fred, I... I kind of connected on the level that he was doing a program he considered indispensable and that he took seriously and he had a sense of mission. You know, he never cashed in in any big way on the, as he could have uh, on the fact that he had so many children watching the show. He didn't, he didn't sell merch or, or, you know, do, you know, live events or anything like that. He just stuck to the program. And, um, I talked with him about what was happening with Nightline at that point, and he was very, very sympathetic and 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 connected. So I ended up feeling uh, a connection to him, deeply admiring him, recognizing his enormous decency, combined with an enormous steel backbone strength about what he believed in, and you know, he, he's not type A. I, I got to see that type B can be like really, really powerful and influential and meaningful. And, um, towards the end of the day, um, we were, he likes to be interviewed. Uh, music means a lot to him and he, he likes to be interviewed sitting at a keyboard. So that's what we did. He sat down at the piano and he would tinkle the keys as we were talking he would do little flourishes and things like that and he would uh, it was kind of his way i think of discharging energy or nerves um and he even said that he he was more comfortable talking when he when he could have his fingers on the keyboard and that when he was a child music was kind of an escape for him so it, that it stayed that way so we're sitting there at the keyboard and then at the end i did something that i had never done with anybody i have ever, ever interviewed before which was to ask for a personal favor um and, and, and that was, could he just look into the camera and say hi to my kids, my, my daughter Noah and my son Ben, who were really little at that time. I thought, oh, if I get this on tape, it'll blow them away. So I was a little embarrassed to ask and a little hesitant, but I did. And um, I'm going to probably get choked up doing this. But he, he said, sure, of course. What are their names? I told them her, their names. And he, he looked into the camera and he said, Ben, Noah your dad and I have had a really, really great day working together. And he really is looking forward to getting back home to seeing something like to get back, back, getting back home to see you. And he, he just kind of 
you know, sent them this message that Mr. Rogers and their dad had had a really good day together. And then he said, and that's why I want to sing you a song. And then he sang another song, which I almost chose instead of the, the it's you I like. And it's, it's such a good feeling to know you're alive. It's such a happy feeling you're growing inside. I can go on and on, but mm. uh, that's how he ends every show with that song. It was kind of, uh, it was, he was kind of ending our day with that song. And I just completely, completely welled up. I was so, I was so touched and so moved by the gesture of, of his doing that. And, um, the following, over the following months, I was trying to arrange for him to, um, to, to come to Washington and and do a talk at, at, uh, a school that my son was going to. And I was in conversation with him and with his staff about that. While I'm doing that, I get a letter from him that he had written and saying what a great day he'd had with me. Hmm. And, uh, and, and again, it was, wow, the small touches from this guy. And then one morning my wife, um, woke me up early in the morning. She gets up earlier than I did. She said, Fred Rogers died. And, um, (laughs) I was really, I felt (laughs) terrible but he had given me or his staff had given me a cup coffee cup um like mr rogers neighborhood coffee cup which is not something they sold they gave them away and so we went down to breakfast and poured a cup of coffee and um we toasted fred do you still have that tape of him uh talking to your kids i do yeah when was the last time you watched it oh it's been about 15 years, something like that. It's mm-hmm. on a format that's hard to work with. Um, you know, I, I interviewed a woman on the, the other show that I host who did a profile of him um, in the 90s. And she the whole profile was about, like, his intentionality. Like, like, everything he did was for a reason. And it was for, like, an open-hearted, genuine reason. Like, down, like you were saying, the smallest touches. Yeah. And yeah. I... I'm, I admire the work that he did, and I think that the world can use a lot more Mr. Rogers' energy, if you will. And uh, I appreciate you sharing that story. Yeah, it's it's surprising to me the the posting I did on YouTube um, has had a lot of views, like more more than a million views. And um, again, because we were going to be doing this conversation, I checked recently to see if anybody's still commenting on it, and people are commenting on a least at least a weekly basis, and most of them are just um so people are people who didn't know him are so moved by who he was and those who did know him say the kind of thing that you just did that he he really he really really made a he was he he did he did good <laughs> you know he did good and he left good behind and um so that's why Mr. Rogers was my first song of 3 number 1 um so you went to high school, like, I, I looked on the map. You went to high school, like, a block and a half from Central Park. So you were right there in the thick of it. You mentioned this earlier, but you, can you reflect on your musical life in high school? Was there any musical memories that sticks out? Um, again, I wasn't, so I wasn't somebody who was, like, steeped in music, but I joined the Glee Club. And um, more for kind of to have an activity and and then I found out that my dad had been in the glee club in his high school and I think or in college and uh 
so I gave that a try. Um, and, um, again, I learned, um, things about music that I, that I didn't know. We were working towards, um, a Christmas concert during my freshman year. And, um, one of the songs that we, one of the pieces that we, we had to learn was the Hallelujah Chorus. And, um, it's an all, it's an all boys high school. And we ultimately put together a concert with girls from an all, all girls high school. And, um, I tried out for the, for the, for the Glee club. Um, the bar was very low because participation wasn't that high. And, um, so I didn't know about tenor voices and bass voices and all of that alto voices. And, um, um, so it turns out I was a tenor. So I had to learn that meant that I only sang part of the music. And that's when I learned that different people sing different parts. I didn't know any of that. I'm really telling you, I was pretty musically, um, what, what's the word? You were tone deaf on multiple levels. Oh, I could, I could hear, I could hear, but you know, I can hear pitch, but I didn't know how music worked. And so, um, so we did all these rehearsals with, um, the hallelujah chorus after school just with the boys and so i thought it sounded pretty amazing and i can still sing my part i I remember it and my son ended up um become my son as i said my both my children are very very musically inclined and he's been he does acapella singing and he plays instruments and uh um, so he's, he did this piece also and i saw him perform at a university and i was able to in my head sing along my part but anyway, the day I remember was we finally got together with the with the girls to do all of the pieces again. And I honestly, I, I had never heard the Hallelujah Chorus performed. I was I only knew it from going to these practices and here's what you had to sing. And I didn't know how to read music. And what I was doing was I was listening to the boy next to me and imitating him. And that's how I learned my part was um, I, I'm very I'm a very, very quick study particularly with my ears. So all I had to do was a couple of, a couple of rehearsals with the, you know, standing, listening to the guys between me and knowing that that was our part and being able to sing along. And I could sing along with, with good pitch. So anyway, we start to rehearse this and, you know, it starts with the very first second, hallelujah, hallelujah, with, with male voices. And then the girls come in and I had no idea that that was going to happen or that their part was different. And it was like, <laughs> Oh my God, my head exploded at what this piece had just turned into. It was kind of like the wizard of Oz where the, where the door go, opens into munchkin land from black and white to color. So I remember having that kind of first insight about, about choral work, I guess. And, uh, so, um, so yeah, I had that experience. I'm not sure if mentioning Central Park, you're talking about concerts in Central Park. I never went to a concert in Central Park. Oh no, Park. no, I wasn't. Uh, I just, I just, I just was trying to imagine how cool it'd be to go to high school block and a half from Central Park. <laughs> yeah, it was a block and a half from Central Park and a block and a half from the Metropolitan Museum of Art, which I did go to. Um, concerts. I've never been a big fan of concerts. They make the um, rock concerts in particular make me. Um, the the images of them kind of make me cringe um i don't like crowds i don't like i don't like crowd minds and um and this is something that again my wife and kids laugh at me at but when i see 
when I see people performing on stage and, and everybody in the audience is kind of idolatrizing them, it makes me very, very uncomfortable. So I, I wasn't a big, I wasn't a very big concert goer. That said, I've gone to some concerts. M- most, most often, though, I like going to concerts as a journalist, covering them for some reason. You know, when I, I, I lived in Russia in the early 90s when there was a lot of um, pushback against the Soviet regime, and some of that was rock rock musicians, you know, performing music that the, that the regime didn't like. And I covered that, and I went to those concerts, things like that. But to to go to join the uh, the the the, the meld, mind meld makes me very uncomfortable. I understand, especially the part about covering something. I, I always tend to, in my life, try to be the person that's watching it from a distance to document it for the people rather <laughs> there's a problem with that though isn't there oh no the, there the, is a you are you are a step removed for sure yeah yeah and i wonder about what that that's about um well here we are um okay well let's do your second song now okay this is the uh the samuel barber song correct yeah the adagio for strings so would you like to listen to it would you like to tell a story some combination of the two yeah on this one i'll go ahead and tell the story so my, my song number two or piece number two is Samuel Barber's Adagio for Strings. Um, interesting fact about this one. I didn't know until very recently. Um, it, it had, it was, uh, had its premiere in 1938 and Samuel Barber was a, a well-known American composer who, who wrote in the style that it, it, we would call classical music very generically today. And he wrote, so he wasn't writing songs. He was writing pieces. And, um, the Adagio for Strings was part of a, a quartet, uh, that he wrote and it had its, the part that's really interesting is that it had its uh, premiere on the radio, on NBC radio in 1938. And in those days there was the NBC orchestra was a well-known, uh, orchestra and, um, uh, led by Oscar Toscanini. And, um, it had its premiere on the radio in Studio H 8H, and that today is the studio where Saturday Night Live comes from. So that was something that I, I hmm. only recently learned that I found pretty interesting. So the and I think that broadcast is still available to be heard. I think it's in the in the uh, state archives or something, the, the national archives. But um, when I was in college one day, um, my roommate we shared a room during my senior year. And my roommate, who was a very into music and particularly classical music, um, and played instruments and had been in uh, choirs that had traveled around the world, um, he he was very into classical music and he had these connections. It wasn't a place where he and I connected. We connected on a lot of on a lot of other things, but not on the music. And one day I was in the room studying, and he suddenly burst in and he went over to his hi-fi system stereo system and put on this record and then he lay down on his bed and he listened to it the the full piece is eight minutes long which i don't think we're going to hear all of but it was eight minutes long and i watched him and and i listened to the music and i saw the music kind of do something to him visibly like just he he was agitated when he came in and then he slowly calmed down and 
I could feel the, this was one time where I kind of could feel the pull and tug of what was happening in the music. It really, this piece really does pull at you. And, um, after it was over, um, the room was silent and I said to him, what just happened? And he said, today's the anniversary of my father's death. His dad had died when he was 10 years old. Today's the anniversary of my father's death, and I forgot. And when I remembered that I forgot, I needed to hear that piece of music. And it, it was, for me, kind of the first time that I had experienced... Um, first of all, I saw how it, he experienced it, but it was the first time that I felt from a piece of classical music, which was definitely not in any part of my upbringing... Um, and had always struck me as, you know, dense and complicated that I had felt myself kind of pulled along, um, emotionally. And it, to some degree, opened a door for me to listen to more classical music, which was very useful when I married my wife, who's a big fan. So that's what this, that's the story behind why I chose this piece is it, it, that day kind of opened a door for me in terms of what kind of music could touch me. You want to go ahead and listen to it? Sure. All right, this is Adagio for Strings by Samuel Barber, performed here by the Boston Symphony Orchestra. It's John Donvan's second song on this week's episode of Three Song Stories. This is Biography Through Music. What was going through your head while you were listening to that? I was thinking, Mike, you know, I'm kind of contradicting myself because at the beginning I said, you know, music, um, I don't feel an emotional connection, but I really felt on that one... um, Maybe that was the piece that began to turn that around for me. Um, and I was thinking how sad it is. It's played a lot at funerals. Um, and it's used a lot in movies over over sad scenes. But um, I'm I'm glad I had that, that moment with my roommate. And, um, and uh, I, I just, you know, it's, it's astounding to me that something so beautiful could come out of somebody's head and turn into sound. So... Um, so I'm I'm maybe backtracking <laughs> on this idea that I'm tone deaf. Um, you know, I mentioned before we started that we've used that song on this show before. It was um, Robin Young, host of Here and Now, who you've probably mm-hmm. crossed path with, paths sure. with her at some yeah. point over the years. Um, the story for her was um, when she was a little girl, when they were broadcasting coverage that President Kennedy had been shot, oh, yeah. when it became clear that he had died they had a stool on the stage where the guy was playing or was um you know presenting and they put this song on and he walked off and it was just the curtains with this song Mm -hmm. and then she said decades later she was at an awards banquet and she told that story and there was an older gentleman at the table who started crying and he was actually the guy that did the sound design for that shot oh gosh it was quite a story and it's quite a song yeah have you ever seen you ever seen it performed live uh, not yet. Hmm. No. Well, I'm sure you will have a chance possibly in the future. Seems like you're probably around the opportunity to see opera and classical music, right? Yeah. Again, as I mentioned, I, my my wife is my wife is the daughter of a classical musician. Actually, both her parents were classical musicians, and then her father was the manager of the Israel Philharmonic Orchestra. Um, so she grew up around um, that kind of music, but she likes all kinds of music, and. Um, she she she's not a big fan of that piece actually she finds it kind of sentimental and overly sweet which maybe it is but she's more of a Bach fan um but um 
she she brings me along to concerts and one third of the time I really like them. So I keep going. <laughs> um, okay. Um, most people will know you from television. Um, these days, you know, you're on our airwaves Sunday nights at seven with Intelligence Squared, which is now called Open to Debate. Uh, mm-hmm. But in reading up on you, you actually got your start in radio. Am I correct? Yeah, definitely. I love radio. And uh, for a time, I was a substitute um, uh, host of the uh, of the 1A show, which I loved doing. And, and that's still going strong. I hope to be invited back sometime because it went pretty well. But um, I've, I, I know it's a cliche, but it's really true that um, there's a there's a room for imagination in radio and just hearing sound because it requires the listener to paint the rest of the picture for themselves. And, um, I, I just always liked that. And my very, very early days of radio also, um, I was a, I was an intern at a radio station in Connecticut in, in a sort of suburban Connecticut town. And within the first week, they trusted me to go to the station every day I would get there at 4.30 or quarter to five, and I would be the one who would turn on the tower, who would turn on the electricity and, and start the broadcast day and, and put in power to the tower. You know, this is maybe technology people don't remember anymore, but radio signals have generally come from towers pointing up into the sky that would then reach the community. And I just loved the idea that I was alone in this little building with the with the position of with the responsibility of turning on the voice to the whole, to that whole community. And, um, and then, um, just being able to reach people by talking and by voice. And, uh, it it was just very, very powerful to me. And television has certainly its own power. Um, but there's something to be said for, it's the same with writing. Um, cause I've, I'm a writer also, um, in fact, I have a film out now that's based on a book that I wrote, and the film is called In a Different Key, and it's about the, kind of the story and experience of people on the autism spectrum. And my book, In a Different Key, is also, um, it's it's not exactly the same thing as the film, but some of it is overlapping, and it's also uh, the stories of people with on the autism spectrum. And I found that in some ways I could say much more by writing a description or describing a person in words, I had much more that I could actually say than just showing them for 30 seconds. Because in the in the writing, I could point to, I could bring in context about who they were, and I could point to, in the writing, I could point to um, like, like a look in their eye or uh, a hesitation in their voice and and why that might have meaning or resonance with something else that was going on. Um, either in that chapter or later in the book and in television you you just see what you see for 30 seconds it's just a person sitting there talking and without without the intermediation of a writer kind of bringing context and 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 um and adding adding layers of meaning so in radio i felt the same thing was possible that it's it, the spoken word is it's very often spoken written word, particularly now in the kinds of the world we're in where people are doing more and more dramatic podcasts and historical podcasts where they're actually writing a script and reading it. Um, that there's, there can be in my view way more power in not being able to see 
what's being described to you than being able to see what's described to you. Does that make sense? It absolutely makes sense. I had um, uh, Ira Glass on this show back, not this show, but the other show I do back when uh, they did the Showtime. They did one season of Showtime of This American Life. And he explained it exactly like that. He's like, as soon as I had images on the screen, it just constrained everything that I can do. I hate it. <laughs> and it flattens it out, too. Yeah. With, with very rare exceptions, there are some things that you absolutely have to see to understand the power. So, you know, some of them are you know, some of the most terrible, frightening scenes. Um, you know, the, the planes hitting the World Trade Center. That's television. That's never going to be radio or the written word. But so much else that's about human interaction and emotions and feelings of individuals, of human beings, um, or or beauty, works better if you, I think if you have somebody describing why why there's beauty in a in a sunset as opposed to just showing you the sunset. By the way, I watched in a different key last night. Listeners, if you're a member of WGCU and have Passport, you can watch it on the website. Um, Thanks for the plug. <laughs> uh, no, it, it's, I mean, we did broadcast it. I didn't watch it when we broadcast it, but I did watch it yesterday. And it's just so good and so touching and so illuminating. So, you know, bravo to you and um, and Karen on that. Thank you. Thanks so much. Um, um, that what was the young guy's name that they that you primarily followed? There was the old guy Donald T, and then there was the young guy. Oh, Mickey. Mickey. Mickey uh, he was yeah. such a great character. He's such, yeah. He was so amazing. And the moment that just really I loved was when he was doing bingo, and yeah. <laughs> and he holds up the uh, uh, the the number sixty five, and you know he has to associate it with everything. And he yeah. holds up sixty five, and he goes five baker's dozens. <laughs> yeah. And I was just yeah. like, oh, it's just such a great character. Anyway, um, you traveled all over the world, all the time. How do you pass the time while you're traveling? Do you listen, um, do you listen to music? Not a lot. Um, At this point, I, I was mean, guessing you probably didn't. Um, I, uh, I went to a very brief phase in London in um, 1981 uh, when I had an apartment there, a flat, as they say, uh, and I bought a little boombox and I bought a bunch of Gershwin music and I listened to the same three or four pieces over and over again to the point where they were kind of burned into my head and um and so and I'm not sure what motivated me to do that um but as a result of that you know um I associate Gershwin with, with London all of the time um but m for the most part I read um to pass the time so I read um I read all kinds of stuff but I was again I'm much more of a word guy than um than a music guy. Um, how did Intelligence Squared come about? Is it is the radio show podcast an extension of a pre-existing entity, if I'm not mistaken, or explain how that works? Intelligence Squared started uh, as an organization in London called Intelligence Squared, and in, in 2006, um, um, a, a gentleman named Robert Rosencrantz, who, who um, essentially funded what we what we put on, bought the rights to the name Intelligence Squared and we became Intelligence Squared US and we replicated their model of an Oxford style debate. Um, and I joined the program in 2008. So at, they did two seasons with rotating moderators and hosts and, and they found it was problematic to have to train the moderator every time. That It was a variable that they wanted to eliminate. So the producer of the program was a friend of mine and asked me if I wanted to try out for it. And I definitely did. Um, I, I, I had just, um, at that point I had just, I had been secretly taking acting lessons while working at ABC's Nightline. Hmm. Um, at night I, w I, I went to the studio 
a theater conservatory in um, in Washington, and they have about a four-year acting program. And I completed that whole curriculum sort of on the on the quiet. Um, and uh, the classes that, in particular, in improv, not not funny, haha, improv, but a different you know improv as a, as a more serious pursuit of just being able to be in the moment and respond quickly and to into to let go of who you are and lose your inhibitions and just respond naturally to create new characters were were the courses that were really really um profoundly changing for me and especially it it impacted my abc broadcast work in the way that i presented myself and so now the, here's the opportunity to do something that combined issues and journalism with having to be live on a stage in an unscripted situation so it was kind of like the perfect perfect experience for me and at that point i was well on in my career i was in my mid-50s when i started doing that and um so we did um so i was successful at it i think because of some of that training that i had done and i got better at it and uh it was really really exciting for me to be on a stage in you know in new york city not far from broadway i'm in a theater in new york city that's packed with people that want to see this unscripted debate and most of the debates went really really well and um i got better and better at it um and the pandemic hit and we couldn't do the theater stuff anymore so we started doing them remotely with uh, audio only and that has become our dominant continuing model at this point um but with the with that shift to in kind of a new direction um, and some other philosophical changes about what it is we're doing in the program, we decided to do a, a name change to open to debate. And um, with the keyword being open, where we want to, um, we want to get across the idea that it's okay that we're going to argue because we're arguing already as a society, but let's find a way to argue in good faith and let's find a way to argue in such a way that we don't have to hate each other just because we disagree. And so that's kind of become our 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 goal and our mission uh, since relaunching, um, you know, two or three months ago now as open to debate. You know, 2008 through now, I think it's fair to say that we've become increasingly polarized. <clears throat> Excuse me. I think it's fair to say we've become increasingly polarized over that stretch. What has it been like to host a show particularly like that? as we presumably, at least as we look at ourselves through the media, have become so, you know, disparate? Well, on, on the one hand, it gives us that, it, it gives us a very clear target, you know, a, a thing that we want to fix. And then we, we like to say that we're, we're working, we want to be part of the solution. We want to find a way to decrease polarization by showing that people can sit down and disagree in good faith and respectfully. On the other hand, there's a lot of people don't want to debate. They don't want to sit at a table with somebody else uh, from the other side. They don't want to, you know, quote unquote, dignify the opposition. And so that's a challenge. Um, and it's one that that discourages me. Um, and there's a what I always found when we were doing them live in New York, most of the time in New York, but we went to other places. We went to San Francisco. We went to Chicago. We went to Boston. We went to Philadelphia. What I found was that the audience that came to these debates, almost all of them came because they actually wanted to hear two sides. They were self-selecting to say, I'm going to come and I, 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 you know, I might agree with one side, but I want the other side to give their best shot. And, um, and that was a very gratifying experience to be in front of an audience like that. And, and very often I would, uh, after every debate, in fact, I would go and mingle with the lobby as people were leaving and chat with them. And very often 
people said to me, you know, I came here and I changed my mind on this issue and I never expected to. And they were founded on an almost exhilarating experience that they had, that they had been able to hear another side and then, and then if not switch sides entirely, open their idea, open their minds to a larger understanding of what the, the issue was about. And I really liked that. At the same time, there are, you know, as we're reaching a larger audience now by going digitally, um, I'm sometimes discouraged by, uh, by the way, some people in the audience just don't want there to be another side. So we did a debate recently about, um, about carbon capture. It sounds very technical, and it is, but it's more interesting than it might sound. And it's based, the basic idea is that, you know, the greenhouse gases are out there and they're, they're resulting in um, global warming and climate change. And the question, the, the debate within the community of people who all believe in climate change is, should they invent a technology to take carbon out of the air to reduce the amount of carbon there? And there are technologies that can do that, but they're very expensive. And so there's one side that says, yeah, we should be doing that right now. We should be getting the carbon out of the air. And the other side says, no, that's a, that's a distraction. And what we should be doing is switching entirely to um, sustainable energy right now. So that's, that's a real debate. And a guy who, who, so I, I, I tweeted about the debate and somebody responds to me saying, I, I don't need to, basically saying any, anybody who says that carbon capture is, um, is, is a viable technology that's a solution to the problem is, is basically in, involved in climate denial, climate change denial. And that's, that's just so not what that argument was about at all. It was just somebody who had a point of view, who didn't want to hear another point of view and who's, who's whose response to it was uh, figuring out a way to put down the other person by calling them a climate denier, which, which was absolutely not true, which makes me think maybe the individual didn't even listen to the debate. And that habit just annoys the hell out of me. And, um, and it's what I, and it's a habit that's ingrained in the culture that's encouraged on Twitter and other social media platforms. And that really disturbs me and that I hope open to debate to some degree said Mr. Pollyanna, can help <laughs> mitigate. You know, um, bear with me here for a second. Um, I think one of the reasons that we have become so partisan and so divided is because we're mediating all of our interactions from a distance, oftentimes uh, um, anonymously. Mm-hmm. And, mm-hmm. and what I'm getting at here is, is when open to debate was happening in person and the people who were debating were looking at each other in the eyes – when you started doing it remotely, did that take some of that? Because we tend to, you know, behave really well when we're in each other's presence. Did taking... No, we didn't find... I know what you're saying is that... I, I also b- believe, like you do, when you're sitting face-to-face with somebody, it's a lot harder to be a jerk to them and aggressive towards them. But when we were doing live debates, very often um, the debaters were playing for the audience vote, so they would kind of... They would want to rile up the audience. In fact, we've done away with the vote. Um in part for that reason, that um, we felt we were presenting a win-lose binary, which isn't necessarily the case. In in doing the, actually in doing the, the, the now remote version, the now online version where we connect through um, te- techno- technologically so that we're just hearing each other's voices and seeing each other's faces, we're more often doing them just one person against one person. And we're, because we're not talking in big voices in front of a hall full of people where they're trying to convince the audience to vote for them or not. There's actually, I would say more, uh, more, uh, we're seeing more 
potential agreement and more respect shown to one another. You know, in, in the debate that I just mentioned about carbon capture, the, those two debaters really disagreed with each other, but they were very respectful to each other and they heard each other out. Um, they didn't agree, but the, the tone was not so aggressive and confrontational. So I'm kind of finding the opposite with the, in a way, because we're not in front of a, because there's not a, a, a viewing audience, it's more intimate now that it's just the three of us talking. Hmm. Well, keep up the good work, and I and I do wish more people would spend time with each other who they disagree with in the physical yeah. world. I think it would help a lot. Totally. Um, okay, let's do your third song, uh, Moon Dust. What's the story, or how would you like to proceed? So I was, um, for many years, I was a foreign correspondent. I was very young when I first went overseas. I was 25 years old, and uh, I lived in London. I lived in Jerusalem. I lived in Moscow. I lived in Amman, Jordan. I covered all of Europe from those places. I covered Africa, uh, the Middle East. And one of the earliest um, experiences I had that was, you know, challenging was when I was 27 or 28. I was in Israel during a time when Israel was waging war against Lebanon in 1982. Yeah, I was 27. And, um, and it was a disturbing experience to go see war for real. And, um, um, it, it's, it's, it's a part of the experience that, that the people who go out and write books about covering wars rarely, rarely talk about sort of what they were feeling internally, but it's, it's frightening, but it's also disturbing to see what people are capable of doing to each other. It was frightening in that, uh, at some moments my, my own life could have been at risk. And, um, the, the, the format in which I was working is I was living in a hotel in Tel Aviv and every few days, uh, I would go up to Lebanon and go up to Beirut, where the war had the front line was moving continuously, and the the distances are so small that you could drive from Tel Aviv to Beirut in about four and a half five hours and spend a day covering the war and then come back to Tel Aviv. And um, um, so so this was happening, and I was a little bit, you know, disoriented from the experience of covering the war. But in the hotel I was staying at. They had, um, it was really before the time when you could choose your movie on a TV set. So they had a different system where they were running three or four movies over and over and over and over again. And one of these movies was called Meatballs. And it's like, it was Bill Murray's first movie. There's a whole story behind the making of Meatballs. It was made at a camp in camp. It's a, it's a story about a summer camp. And Bill Murray's first movie, and there's a whole legend about how this film got made and how he was improvising his way through and didn't show up on the set until the day he, they were starting filming and he was showing up on a motorcycle. And it was it was like a completely ridiculous movie about American life. And I found myself watching this movie over and over and over again. And I think it was because it was like, it was it was it was calming me down and it was bringing me home and it was... It was American. It seemed so ordinary and it was so silly. Um, like MASH, it would probably not uh, be made today for, for some of the content. And um, there's a scene in the movie where um, it's parents' day. And the parents, um, all of the kids get into these yellow buses and they drive to a parking lot and all their parents are there in their cars and all the parents get out and they all hug their kids for, for parents' day. And during the during the making of the uh, during the this scene there just happens to be this um 
this kind of love song playing in the background uh, called, let's say it was, the, let, it's called Moon Dust. The line is, let's say it was the moon dust by a Canadian singer named um, Terry White, Terry Black. And um, um, so I I'd, I'd had this experience of watching this movie a million times and then kind of forgot about it. Um, but then about 15 years ago, my kids are going to camp and we pull up to drop them off and we're in a parking lot with all of the other parents and there are these yellow buses and all of a sudden it fires up in my head this song because that's what I do with music and I I had kind of completely forgotten about it and I went back after dropping the kids off to to see if this did I remember it correctly and I found the song on YouTube and I actually found like Mr. Rogers songs a number of covers of it that were really really quite beautiful I don't think this is like a great song, but I think it's a sweet song and I think it has a nice melody and I chose it again because it, it, it reminds me of my kids when they were little. It reminds me of myself when I was young covering the war and looking for a way to kind of calm down. So that's why Moon Dust is my song number three. All right, let's listen to it. This is John Don Van's third and final song here on Three Song Stories. It's Moon Dust by Terry Black from the soundtrack to the 1979 movie Meatballs. With its moon dust melody. When was the last time you watched Meatballs? Probably five years, five years ago or so. It's it's it, that that movie actually kind of holds up because it was so silly. I uh, I watched it yesterday. <laughs> Oh my gosh! <laughs> does it hold up? Yeah, it does. It really does hold up. But I felt I felt like I had to because I've seen it before. But I felt like uh-huh. I had to have it in my brain because I because when you sent the song, I was like, well, surely this is a song by a guy that was on an album, and then they picked it for the Meatball soundtrack. But no, this song was like made for the Meatball soundtrack. So yeah. I knew, and that, it has nothing to do with. Oh, it has nothing the, to do I mean, with anything. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> oh, I just love my job because I can watch a PBS documentary about autism and meatballs in the same day. <laughs> um, you know, I was thinking that you. I did the math. You were, but you would have been twenty-four when meatballs came out. You were twenty-seven when you were over in Israel. Um, I was imagining that you were like the Bill Murray character at a summer camp somewhere in like Connecticut when you were in your early twenties. No. no, no. But I was just thinking, as listening to it, that you know how many decades that experience is leapfrogging. Because um, I didn't. I had never heard of the movie when I saw it on the TV in uh, in. Uh, in the hotel in Tel Aviv and it didn't have a big splash at the beginning. I think it became, it's more of a cult hit now. So i I discovered it in 82 and then it's um, th- like 30 years later, it, it has meaning for me again with my kids. And then 15 years after that, you and I are talking about it. So I was just thinking about, it's kind of like a rock skipping across the lake. It keeps having some kind of impact on me and, and listening to it. I was thinking much more about, about my children going off to summer camp and yellow buses than I was about the movie itself. Isn't it crazy how music and songs do that? You know, that's like, that's why we're here with this show. Like that's the engine of this show, but it's just amazing. Yeah, I guess you're right. I guess I am right for the show after all, (laughs) if if that's the purpose. I, 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 I hated like acknowledging that music is not deep in my bones the way it is for so many people, but I think it made sense that I was here. Um, All right. We are going to head in for a landing now, John Donvan. Are you ready for a speed round? Yeah. 
Do you have a nickname that has stuck over the course of your life that you would be willing to share with our listeners? John Don. John Don. Okay. Also, all one word, John Don? Uh-huh. When was the last time you purchased music that had physical form that you could hold in your hand, like a record or a CD? Probably, um, probably 1990, 1993, Ooh. 1994. Ooh. Do you do karaoke? I have. I'm terrible at it, but that's the point. If you I had have. to do it, what, what song would you use or what song did you do? I would do Moondust for sure. Um, I can't remember what I did. It was such a long time ago. I'm sorry. Oh, no, that's a moon dust. Is, if I'm ever pressed into it, I might do that because it would just be so random. Um, if you were a championship wrestler, what music would you enter the arena on? Huh. Um, Rocky music, the Rocky theme song. What would your wrestler name be? Do wrestlers have names? I'm, I'm, yeah, like there's I'm the Undertaker, too. The Rock. Hulk Hogan, I guess that's his name. <laughs> <laughs> I was thinking Don oh. John, like a Don, like a boss. Oh, I like that Don John. I was thinking maybe something more like the Brain, but that, oh, that's fun. That would be a, that the would be brain. a path to being defeated a lot, wouldn't? It? I like Don John, um, and you can kind of riff on like you could have like a like you know you could your outfit could be like you were a mafia guy. That's fun. <laughs> um, if you were a cocktail or drink of some kind that represented your essence, what would it contain? Um. I, I just straight gin. Straight gin called the Don John. Straight gin, yeah. If you had to get gin on the rocks, let's say gin on the rocks. Gin on the rocks, yeah. Like they drank in the swamp on Mash. <laughs> yes, yeah, it's true. If you had to guess, what would you say is the song you've listened to the most times in your life? Um, I would guess it's actually, at least in the last ten years, the other Mister Rogers song. Um, that I mentioned, it's such a good feeling because every now and then I fire up YouTube and I listen to it. What activities or pursuits most make you lose track of time? Writing, no question. Having to write, I don't know what's going on after I get into it. What song would you like to hear again for the very first time? Um... Man of La Mancha, Impossible Dream. Are there any songs you'll avoid listening to for whatever reason? No. If you could broadcast a song into the head of every human in one global collective moment, which song would you choose? Oh, back to Mr. Rogers. I'm back to um, It's You I Like. Couldn't go wrong with that. Um yeah. Is there a fourth song? Well, you know what? I know there's a fourth song because you switched. What's the short version of your Beatles song that was the song you swapped out? Long and Winding Road. I just think it's most, I, I actually, one of my, one of my objections to um, pop music in general, and I, had, I didn't talk about the fact that I kind of find a lot of it not that meaningful, is that the lyrics so often are sort of empty you know even moon dust i kind of moon dust speaks to me because of the memory of, of of covering the war and then my kids it's not because i think the lyrics are so beautiful the, the lyrics are sort of empty and i i find most popular music the lyrics are sort of empty and lacking in passion unless you're you happen to be 17 years old and having your first crush and but after that it, it's it it doesn't really relate to anything most of the time it doesn't really relate to anything that's really going on in the world 
But Long and Winding Road, I think, has a, a very, very powerful and deep message about just all of us being here for the journey. And um, again, it relates to my kids. One of my kids had to do a project around that song and I began to hear it in the house again and again and again. And um, it just, um, it it became something that I I could connect to, that that I did connect to. And uh, um, in the end, I, you know, the reason... The reason I switched songs is I mentioned to my wife that we were doing the program and I said to her, um, you know, you remember when I said I would like Long and Winding Road to be played at my funeral? And she said, that's not the song you wanted played at your funeral. <laughs> I said, what was it? She said, it was Moondust. <laughs> I, I said, oh, well, I better swap Moondust in. I don't remember wanting that at my funeral, but um, um, that's how that switch came about. But uh, I just think Long and Winding Road does have meaningful lyrics. They're simple, but simple can be meaningful as opposed to simple meaning being sort of empty. What would your 14-year-old self, who if I'm doing the math right, that's probably about when you started heading into Manhattan for high school. What would your 14-year-old self think of who you are today and what you've done? I I think I would be pretty amazed um, and and lucky. and, And I would look forward to what was to come. Hmm. Um, any advice you'd want to send back or do you think you, you, it's all aligned pretty well? Oh, the advice I would give to myself every day, if I could only get it under control is to not give a crap what anybody else, what anybody else thinks. All right. It is time for you to recommend three people who you'll share this with, who you think we might have a chance of getting on the show. Okay. I think Arthur Brooks is a possibility. So he was the head of the, uh, of Brookings for a while. And he's done some very interesting writing and thinking about, um, about decency and being nice to people and, um, and, uh, and, and humility. Um, and I think he's somebody who would be game for a conversation like this. And I hope it's Brookings. He's at not, yeah, not the American enterprise Institute. Um, he's not a, he's not a stuffed shirt, which you might think somebody at the head as the head of a thing, a, a think tank is, um, another one would be Pete Dominic. Pete Dominic is a friend of mine who um, who used to have a radio show on uh, on uh, Sirius FM, and um, and he was fired from that after several years. And it was like his joy, pride, and joy doing that show, and it kind of broke him that he lost that opportunity. But then he picked up the pieces, and he now has launched his own podcast and has built a whole community around that. And I just think he would have interesting things to say because he does about everything. And um, Third, um, I would give a shot for uh, for Juju Chang, who is an anchor at ABC Nightline. Um, she's um, she's just a terrific person who's been very very supportive of our, our film project, and she knows a lot and a lot of people, and has been around the world, and is just insightful. And I think she potentially could also be game. Well, if you can do anything you can to connect us with them, we would be much appreciative. Um, do you have any final thoughts you'd like to leave us and our listeners with, John? I just want to say how much I really enjoyed this. I was very, very unsure if I had anything meaningful to bring to this. I may still be unsure of that, but I know that I enjoyed it. Well, we've enjoyed having you. Well, thank you so much. Really, Mike, I really appreciate it. 
We make three song stories in the studios of WGCU Public Radio on the campus of Florida Gulf Coast University in Fort Myers, Florida. Richard Chinqui is co-creator and producer. Tara Calligan is host and online content producer. Our production assistant is Jared the Intern Gonzalez. Christophus is our executive producer. And our theme song was created by Dave 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 Cowan and Stick Martin at Monkey House Studio in St. Pete. For this week's Parting Tune, we're going back one year to episode 224 guest Juliana Morgan Alvarez. She's a Los Angeles-based actor, artist, and theater maker who was in town for a production at Ghostbird Theater Company in Fort Myers. Her third song comes from one of her favorite movies, The Royal Tenenbaums. She first saw it in high school during a time when she was unsure about pursuing a career in acting. A lot of pressure comes on in high school to like make choices about who you're going to be as a human being and I just like wasn't sure that acting was going to be it and then I saw this movie and the craftsmanship of it and the dedication of the performers in it like Angelica Houston just blows it out of the water in this film and and the movie spoke to me as a teenager, as somebody whose parents were going through a rocky time and like feeling like I wasn't being seen to like watching this movie that made me realize there are artists, there are craftsmen, there are actors who are making work that is about like finding humor in the absurdity of life. And that was a huge moment for me to be like, okay, if this, if this kind of work exists out there for actors, then I can I can dedicate my life to that. Um, and so the song is uh, Me and Julio Down by the Schoolyard by Paul Simon. And that song also just sort of became a, an anthem for me personally whenever I was like hitting rocky parts of my life of like, I don't know where I'm going. <laughs> um, and I will and I'll listen to it before um, I perform a lot of the time. Keep listening.